on Palm Sunday, and, and uh, if you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to turn with me to Mark chapter 10. It's where we're going to be. We're continuing this series that we've been in uh, over the past several weeks. It's called There is Always Hope. And uh, been some powerful, powerful lessons uh, that we've been uh, learning and, and seeing in God's Word over the past weeks. And, and, and the reason that we're talking about and we're focusing on hope is because it's what we have found is that it is so important for us to have hope in our lives. We've been talking about the fact that it is, is any hope that we have in our lives that drives us. It's hope in our lives that, that helps us to look forward. It's, it's hope that we, can, that we have in our lives that helps us to move forward. If we don't really have any hope, we don't really have any motivation uh, for the future. And so that's why we've been focusing on hope and, and talking about how important hope is in our lives. But what we've seen is we've been going through this is, is we begin it, we're beginning to understand that sometimes our situation or maybe our circumstance or maybe the events that are surrounding us robs us of our hope right? And, and so because of, uh, of something we may have gone through or some situation or circumstance or whatever it may be ha- has robbed us uh, or drained us of our hope. And again, as followers of Jesus, we must have hope to be able to, to look forward and to move forward. And we've been talking about this central theme uh, throughout this series, and, and it's this, when you hope again, you feel alive again, right? When, when you have hope, then you feel alive again. And so we've been talking about as followers of Jesus, we must understand that our hope isn't in our situations. Our hope isn't in our circumstance. Our hope isn't in uh, our surroundings. Our, our hope isn't in this messed up world or a political system or a government or anything like that. Our hope is in Jesus. And so when you have hope, you'll feel alive, right? And and so that's what I've been praying for you. That's what I've been praying for your families and and for our church, that we will be people that are filled with hope because when we are filled with hope, we'll be alive. We'll be alive as the body uh, of Christ. But before we get to our text this morning and and get to to what we're going to be talking about, I'm just curious, how many of you here this morning are familiar with the television show? It's a reality TV show called Pawn Stars. Anybody ever, Pawn Stars, any y'all watch that or are, are familiar with it? Yeah, a few of you uh, out there. But, but it, it's a reality show that's based on kind of the experiences that take place in a pawn shop. Okay, if you're not familiar with it, that's kind of what it's about. And, and, and I've only, only seen it just a few times, but I recently read this story uh, about one of the shows that took place there and kind of got me thinking about what we're going to be talking about and focusing on today. But, but on this one show, this guy walks into the pawn shop and he's carrying, uh, and, and some of you that aren't familiar with guitars, this is going to mean absolutely nothing to you, okay? But I'll try to help you out. But anyway, this guy walks into the, the pawn shop and he's carrying a Fender Stratocaster guitar. Okay. These are like, (laughs) yeah, exactly the best. A Fender Telecaster guitar. Now, not only is this guy carrying a Fender Telecaster, not Telecaster, Stratocaster guitar, 
But he proceeds to tell the people at the pawn shop that this once was a guitar that was owned and played and used in recordings by Jimi Hendrix. Okay, yeah, some of you don't know who Jimi Hendrix is, but you heard Charlotte Gass. Jimi, Jimi Hendrix is like the guitar player in the whole wide world, right? And so this guy walks into this pawn shop with this, this Fender Stratocaster, and he says, you know, this is Jimi Hendrix's guitar, you know. And, and I'm sitting here thinking, you know, my, my first thought is this. If I had Jimi Hendrix's guitar, if I had a guitar that Jimi Hendrix had once played and recorded with, I wouldn't be taking it to a pawn shop, Right? And even if I was needing money, you know, if, if I, I can't even think of a situation bad enough that would happen to Lynette where I would sell this guitar. But, but even if I had to, I mean, even if, if I, I had to have the money, I wouldn't take it to a pawn shop. You know, I'd be putting it on eBay or some kind of auction or, or whatever. But keep in mind. This is reality TV, right? And so about a, a pawn shop. And so they bring in this appraiser and, you know, because they want to check it out and see, you know, if there's any value to this guitar whatsoever. So they bring this guy in that's like an expert on guitars and he starts checking it out and he looks at them and he basically tells them this. He said, you know what? This guitar actually is a guitar that Jimi Hendrix used to play and use and recorded with. And he said, this guitar is worth anywhere between half a million to $750,000, right? Because of who played it. And, and, you know, this Fender Stratocaster, whatever. And, And so then the appraiser goes to the guy and he tells the man that brought it in, he said, I'll tell you what, he said, I'll give you $450,000 for this guitar. Yeah, wow. I'm thinking $450,000 for a guitar. That, you know, that's absolutely crazy. That's a crazy amount of money for We've paid some unbelievable amounts for some guitars in my house, I promise you. But $450,000. Well, this guy won't take it because now he knows what it's worth, right? And, and so they negotiate back and forth. And, and, and finally, you know, the appraiser goes all the way up to $600,000. And he tells this guy, I'll give you $600,000 for this guitar. And the guy with the guitar now is saying, I won't take anything less than $750,000. And he takes the guitar and he walks out of the pawn shop. I don't know what you're thinking, but I'm thinking, fool, right? (laughs) You know? And this is, you know, reality TV, so if you're like me, you're probably skeptical of all things, and I'm thinking, you know, they just made this all up just so they could make another show that would be interesting. But, but you know, when I was reading this story, it got me to thinking, how do we determine something's value? How do we determine what something is worth? How do you know if a guitar is worth half a million dollars or if it's worth 750000 because there's a huge difference there. So how do you determine that? What, wh- how do you know what something is worth in life? Well, it's actually kind of simple. And we've got a lot of car salesmen in our church, right, that are coming to know Jesus, hopefully. So, But anyway, th- they understand this more than most folks, and I'm just kidding. I, if it wasn't for car salesmen, I wouldn't be driving a new truck every year. So, But I love you guys. But, but actually, it's kind of simple, and, and it's this. Value is determined not by what someone says, right, but by what someone is willing to pay. Uh-huh. 
right? Value is determined not by necessarily what someone puts on the price tag, but it's determined by what someone is willing to pay. And anybody that's in sales or anyone that sells cars can tell you a car is only worth what somebody's willing to pay for it, right? Value is determined by what someone is willing to pay. And you could take that Fender Stratocaster and you could put that sucker on eBay and you could put a price tag on it of $2 million, but it's not going to be worth $2 million unless someone is willing to pay $2 million, right? Because value is determined by what someone is willing to pay for it. So let me ask you this this morning. How valuable are you? What are you worth? What, it, what is the value of your soul? And, and some of you may be at a place right now in, in your life where, you know, maybe you don't have a lot of hope. Maybe, you know, you feel like you don't have any value at all. And, and you look at yourself in the mirror maybe and you don't really feel like you have a lot of worth and, and you hear these voices in your mind that tell you that you're worthless, that, you know, there's no hope, that maybe you're just a bum or maybe you're a fake or that, you know, maybe, maybe no one cares about you and you just hear this playing over and over and over again uh, in your mind. Maybe you think that you don't amount to much or you're worthless or you don't have much hope at all of ever being valued again by anyone else, right? Maybe you're carrying around the labels that were put on you as a child by a parent who spoke destructive words to you as a child. Maybe you carry around labels that were put on you on the, the playground when, when you were a, a kid at school or maybe someone in a past relationship who tore you down and spoke destructive words into your life. And sometimes, here's the deal, if you're not careful, you can get to a place in your life where you feel you have no worth. You can get to a place to where you feel like you have no value, you have nothing to add, you have nothing to gain, and you find yourself in this place where you feel like there's really not a whole, lot of hope. But I want you to, to listen to me this morning. Value is not determined by how you feel. Your value is not determined by what someone said about you. Your value is not determined by uh, how you may feel when you wake up in the morning. Your value is determined by what someone is willing to pay for you. And that's why it's so important as we go into this Easter weekend, moving into Holy Week this week, that we should stop and we should pause and remember what Jesus was willing to pay for you. Jesus' sacrifice is what determines your value. It was Jesus that sets your worth for your life and your soul. Your value is unlimited. God's love is incredible. And what he did for us is so much more than a price tag. 
He, he gave his son. Jesus literally came and lived and he died so that we could experience God's grace and his mercy in, in our own lives. You're worth so much more than Jimi Hendrix Fender guitar, right? You're worth dying for. And there is so much hope in that today. There is so much hope there for you and for me today. And as brutal as the cross was, it's a reminder to every single one of us today of the value that has been placed on our lives. And because of the cross, there is always hope, right? So today what I want to do is I just want to go back 2,000 years I want to go back 2,000 years and look again at what Jesus did for us in our lives. And I want to pick it up at Mark chapter 10. And, and we get this powerful picture as Jesus is sharing with his disciples what's about to happen, what's coming, what's about to take place. Mark chapter 10, I want to pick it up in, in verse 32. It says, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. See, they were traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem. And this would have been about a 100-mile trip on foot. No, no cars, right? Uh, you know, just horseback or donkey or walking. But anyway, they're making this 100-mile journey to Jerusalem for Passover. And, and it says, And the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. And again... He took the 12, talking about the 12 disciples, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen. And then verse 33, we're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man. And by the way, that reference is to himself. Jesus is the Son of Man. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Now, I want you to notice a, a, a few things here th this morning. First of all, what happened to Jesus was no surprise to Jesus, okay? As they were walking to Jerusalem, he knows that they were walking into a situation to where he's about to be tortured and he's about to be crucified. And he knows that he's going to be mocked. He knows that he's going to be crucified. He knows this is coming. It's no surprise to him. And as you read through the Gospel of Mark, you will find that this is the third time that Jesus shares this warning with uh, his disciples about what's coming in, in these days ahead. And they don't really fully understand it. They're not really getting it. They're not grasping it. But they do know this. They do know that to follow Jesus is to follow him to Jerusalem. All right? To follow Jesus is to follow him on this journey. To follow him down this path. And so they continue to follow him even with this warning. Right? Even with this warning that Jesus has been sharing with them. And they traveled to Jerusalem 2,000 years ago on what we call today Palm Sunday. Right? And, and there were actually two different processions that entered into Jerusalem that day. On that Palm Sunday. On one side of the city, there was Jesus 
entering in on the east side. And Jesus was entering into the city riding on a donkey. You see, Jesus was the hero of of peasants. He was the hero of the working class man, the common people. Jesus uh, would have been popular with that group of people. And they praised him as he entered into the city and they laid their cloaks at his feet, scripture tells us, and they waved palm branches as he came by and they shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of of the Lord. And and that word Hosanna that they used was a Hebrew word that they would have used many times uh, in their prayers. And it's a Hebrew word that came that means save now. So as Jesus was riding into the city, they saw a Savior. They were celebrating a Savior, one who was going to come and save them now. Hosanna. Hosanna. And so They enter Jerusalem at the beginning of the week of Passover. It was the most important Jewish event of the year. And on that same day, on the west side of Jerusalem, another procession is entering the city, and it was that of Roman governor Pilate. He he represented power. He represented the government. He represented the Roman Empire. And he was also coming to Jerusalem for Passover that that week. He was coming to make sure that the city would remain under his control, that the events of the week that, that were coming wouldn't get out of hand. And Pilate, as he entered into the city, he would have come in in a much more dramatic fashion and dramatic way than, than Jesus did. He, he would have come in with a, a full display of all of his power. There would have been cavalry who would have rode in with him on horses. There would have been foot soldiers marching with him uh, armed with weapons and gear. They would have had banners that they would have been uh, uh, carrying when golden eagles mounted on poles. There would have been no doubt whatsoever that he charge and in charge and he was powerful and he was in control. I want you to think about these two different processions that were entering into the, the city on that Palm Sunday. Jesus' procession proclaimed the kingdom of God and Pilate's procession proclaimed Roman power and allegiance to a government and a military. And their entrance into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday set up a conflict that was to come later on in the week when they both would meet face to face. That was Sunday. The next day, on Monday, Jesus cleans out the money changers from the temple. Some of you will remember uh, that story from the last week of his life. In fact, Monday of Holy Week is often known as the Day of Judgment. Tuesday is known as the day of conflict because it was on Tuesday when Jesus would find himself in conflict with the religious leaders. The religious leaders were questioning his authority. They were questioning what authority authority that he acted with. 
It, it was also on Tuesday that Jesus would sit down on the, with his disciples and try to explain to them again what all of this meant. He spoke of the second coming, the signs, the things for them to, to look for and to watch for. And it's also on Tuesday, the day of conflict, that they plot to take Jesus' life and Judas agrees to be the betrayer, to be the one who would betray Jesus. On Wednesday, it's known as the day of silence because we have no records in, in Scripture as uh, uh, to what happened on Wednesday of Holy Week, the final week of Jesus' life. On Thursday, it's known as the day of preparation. Jesus meets with his disciples in the upper room for the Passover meal, which is also called the Last Supper. And it was shortly after uh, the Last Supper where Jesus is betrayed. And he endures a night of Jewish trials that, that, that were nothing more than just a mockery of justice. And Jesus is hit and he's beaten. And that takes us into Friday morning on which we know today as Good Friday. And Jesus was brought in and he was bound and shackled and he's brought in to Pilate, the governor. Because, see, only the Romans were the only ones that could actually issue uh, the death penalty. And so two men that had both ridden in to the city of Jerusalem on Sunday are now coming face to face on this Friday morning. And this is what's recorded in Mark chapter 15, verse 2. It says, Pilate, the governor, this Roman man of great power, asked Jesus, Are you king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priest accused him of, of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things that they are accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply and Pilate was amazed. I think that's a very significant sentence there that Jesus still made no reply and Pilate was amazed because I want you to think about it. People like Pilate, people of great power are not used to being in situations to where they don't get their questions answered, <laughs> right? Jesus wasn't intimidated by his power. Jesus isn't afraid. He isn't intimidated by the government and he refused to answer as an act of surrender to God's will. Scholars say that when Pilate asked him if he was the king of the Jews, that, 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 that this was uh, the emphasis in that, in that statement was on that word you that we saw there. The emphasis was on that word you, like you have said it. You're the one that said it. I didn't say that. Jesus said you who are the one who said so. So then from there, Pilate has Jesus severely whipped. And we need to understand that the Romans were masters at torture. They took great pride in the fact how they could torture someone and, and kill someone. So what would happen before crucifixion, the, the, the victim would be severely flogged. 
All right, they used whips that would have pieces of bone and pieces of glass and maybe even pieces of metal weaved into the whip that they would use that they would flog someone someone with so that when they hit them with it, those, those fragments, the bone, the glass, the metal, whatever it was that was in the whip would actually uh, cut into them. And they would bind them in such a way before they would do this. They would tie them in such a way that the, the, the skin and the muscle and the flesh on their back would be pulled tight as they, they were tied. And these human, uh, uh, these Roman uh, soldiers, they were experts in how to use these whips, how they could just lay them over and arch them just perfectly where the bone and the, the glass would dig into the flesh. And then when they would rip it, it, it would actually pour the, the flesh. And, and the meat from the body. And, and scholars say that six out of ten times, just the flogging itself would kill the victim. Six out of ten times, the majority of the time, a person would be flogged the way that Jesus was flogged, they died. Jesus' flogging was severe. You'll remember back a couple weeks ago, we've been in 1 Peter as we've been talking uh, about uh, in this series that there's always hope. And you'll remember when we saw Peter say this in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24. I want to put it up on your screen again as a reminder. It says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Now, that, that, that word that's used here, wounds, would have been a, a, a rare word to be used. They would, have, they would have understood back in the time in the original language just kind of the hor- horrific and graphic picture that would come along with this word that was used there, wounded, because it referred to the bloody and bruising beatings and blows that were inflicted on slaves back in this time. Okay, and so the term that Peter uses here means that Jesus, it paints this picture that Jesus was severely beaten. And historians say that, that even more, probably more than the typical 39 lashes that would have been issued, and all this due to the accusation that he was king. So many died, right, just from the flogging, which shows you just how strong and how powerful Jesus was. Our Savior wasn't weak, and our Savior wasn't a wimp, as some people would portray him and say that he was. And after Jesus' flogging, the, show, the soldiers shove a crown of thorns, very similar to the one we see here today. They shove this crown of thorns down onto his head, and he goes all the way to the cross for you. So, how much are you worth? What is your value on your absolute worst day? Your value is what someone is willing to pay for you. (laughs) And Jesus is standing there, flogged beaten within an inch of his life, and he's saying, you're worth dying for. Listen, you're worth dying for, and he's worth living for. 
So in your life, will you come uh, to a place where you say, you know what, I'm not going to base my value anymore. It stops today. I'm not going to base my value anymore. I'm not going to base my worth on my own feelings. I'm not going to base my value on my past. I'm not going to base my value on my history. I'm not going to base my value on my screwed up family that I've had to deal with. I'm not basing my family on any of that, on my value on any of that anymore. I'm going to base my value and my worth on what Jesus has done for me. <laughs> That's where our value is. That's where our worth comes. I'm getting tongue tied. Second time I preached this, and this time is better than the first. I'm just telling you. But that's what this week is all about, okay? That's what this week is all about. The week leading up to Easter is a week where we reflect on these events. And we reflect on Good Friday. Pilate, now he goes back out to appease the people after Jesus has been flogged and, and, and beaten. And they're hungry for more blood now, right? They're yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And so Pilate hands them over, uh, you know, to the people to be crucified at their insistence. And by this time, uh, uh, you know, Jesus is walking up Calvary. Historians and scholars said that more than likely he probably would have been in shock now, uh, at this point, based on the extreme pain that he was in and the severe loss of blood that he experienced. And oh, by the way, now he's carrying a 75 to 100 pound beam crossbar across his back. And Mark simply says this in Mark chapter 15 and verse 24. And they crucified him. There's no description. There, there's no description in the Bible. The, you know, this, uh, all that the Bible really says in the New Testament about what happened to Jesus is three words. They crucified him. And that word crucified to the ancient culture was so horrific. It was so graphic. It was so bad that there was no need to describe it. They were well aware of what it meant and, and, and what was associated with that. And so the gospel writers of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, none of them can even bring themselves to write more of a description other than to say they crucified him. In fact, to tell you how, how intense this word and, and the picture of horror that it painted for people, the, the early followers of Jesus, they, they were kind of like us. They had a lot of different symbols that expressed their Christian views and their faith and, and, and all these things. And they had all these kinds of different symbols. They, they depicted the, the church, for instance. Often you would see, uh, they would show it as the ark, representing Noah's ark, okay? A, a symbol of the ark that was saving those on the inside from destruction. It was a picture of the church. And so you would see this simple uh, symbol that was painted or drawn, you know, in catacombs and other places uh, on, the, on the walls. They would also draw and paint pictures of a dove, 
right? This was a symbol that was typically used uh, back then. It symbolized the Holy Spirit, uh, as we see in the book of Acts, and it was very important to them. Jesus was often portrayed and shown as the good shepherd, tending to his sheep, right? As we see in a lot of accounts of the Last Supper. But don't miss this. Nowhere do we find or do we see a cross used by the early followers of Jesus. Nowhere. The first cross that uh, appears was carved in a door of a church in Santa Sabina in the 5th century. This was over a hundred years after crucifixion had actually been made illegal and outlawed, right? So a full 400 years after Jesus had been crucified, was there enough distance between that horrific event and between Christians and what he had endured in that crucifixion that they would begin to then use the cross as their symbol of faith and their devotion to Jesus Christ. So the gospel writers give us no description. They simply say, they crucified him. There's nothing else to add. Nothing else to say. And at Calvary, there would have been a vertical post that was set there. It would have been permanently set for crucifixions. The victim would have been brought and laid on his back and his wrist nailed to this cross beam that he had been carrying. And we traditionally think that the nails were, were driven in, in the palms, but historians say that, that uh, you know, if the nails would have been driven in the, in the palms, that it would have torn loose. The weight uh, would have never, would never held, and, uh, held. And actually had someone come and share with me after the first service today that actually back then... Uh, they considered their hand to be this part uh, of their arm that actually went all the way up to the elbow. But, but scholars tell us that, that the nails would have been driven through the wrist in order to cause the most torture and agony because they would have known exactly where to place the spike in between the two bones uh, there in the wrist to hit the most nerves and cause the most pain. Again, they were masters uh, of torture. And so they drove the spikes into Jesus's wrist there on Calvary. And then they raised him up into position on the, the post, the beam that was already there on the cross. They drove spikes in his feet. And these again would have damaged nerves and broken bones and just increased the torture and the pain that would be experienced. I want you to think about it. As all of this was taking place, there were people gathered around that were watching this. It was a public display of torture and crucifixion, and the religious leaders would have been there. The religious leaders, the leaders of the church, the ones with all the laws, the ones with all the rules, the ones who had opposed Jesus as a rebel, they would have been there right? And they would have stood back in assurance of their victory that they had rid this world of the troublemaker in the church. They would have gotten rid of this one who was speaking things that made people uncomfortable and didn't go along with their rules and the behaviors that they had set. And so they would have stood back thinking, if he really is the son of God as he claims to be, then he would save himself. But since he hasn't, <laughs> we must be right. We must be right. 
Let me tell you something gruesome. Uh, crucifixion is a gruesome and it is a horrible way to die. Today we have gas chambers, we have electric chairs, we have lethal injections that are used as forms of execution in our world today. And it's horrible. As horrible as those things are, these modern ways that we have today of executing people, they're sterile. They're sanitized compared to this ancient act of crucifixion. They're private. Crucifixion is public. They're they're quick where crucifixion would have taken many, many hours. I want you to think about this. Only God could take a symbol so horrible, so horrific, take a symbol of legalized torture. Only God could take that and turn it into a symbol of love. Only God could do that. John writes, this is how we know what love is, that Jesus laid down his life for us. The cross literally defines love for us. Without the cross, we don't even know fully what love is. And so, friends, today and this week, we're reminded of what Jesus did for us. On Easter, next week, we're going to celebrate, and we're going to celebrate big that he rose again. But today, we pause, we stop, and we remember. How much are you worth? Way more than a Fender Stratocaster played by Jimi Hendrix. You're worth an incredible amount to God. You are worth dying for. And Jesus came and he died for you so that you would live for him. And because of the cross, there is always hope. Let me pray for you. God, we come today just to stop and to uh, remember and be reminded of this incredible price that was paid for us. Thank you today for reminding us of our value. Thank you for reminding us today that we're worth so much. Even on our worst days when maybe we feel worthless, I pray that you will remind us again of the price that's been paid for us and we have unlimited value in your eyes. So much so that you sent your only son to die for us. Thank you for reminding us today and this week of Calvary and the price was paid that none of us could have ever paid. And so I pray that throughout this week and this coming weekend that uh, it would just kind of be at the forefront of our minds, that love, that amazing love that you've shown us and you continue to show us. And then next week, God, we're going to celebrate a risen Savior. You didn't stay on the cross. You didn't stay in the tomb. We serve a God that is alive, 
powerful and active in our lives. And again, today, I just want to thank you for loving us. And again, to tell you, I love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.